thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Don't know the answer? Ask the Naked Scientists. Hello and welcome to this week's Ask the Naked Scientists with me, Sue Marchant and Chris Smith. Um, excesses are, seem to be quite interesting. I found a little story about scientists want to study um, Ozzy Osbourne in a bit to find out why he's still going after, um, you know, <laughs> uh, at 61. Uh, I think it's because he he's has a changed... a miracle, that guy. Yeah, he has changed his ways a little bit there, hasn't he? Yeah, he's moved on from bats onto uh, other animals instead. Oh, dear. <laughs> Someone did say they were going to sequence his genome, and I was speculating how much bat DNA they'd probably find in there, uh, given that we now know that certain uh, genes which are in the food that you eat, bits of DNA from, from things that are in the food you eat, can make their way into the bacteria that live in your gut. There was a study a few months ago in, in Nature where scientists were studying marine genes that live in, or from bacteria that live on seaweed, and they found that the same genes were cropping up in people's intestines. But the only people who carried them were people who lived in Japan. And the reason it turned out was because the people from Japan were eating lots of seaweed, because in Japan sushi is very popular, and because there were obviously these bacteria with these genes in on this seaweed in the sushi, when the people were eating this, it was going into the intestine, and their own bacteria in the intestine were stealing genes from the food they're eating and in- incorporating it into their own genome, enabling the bacteria in the person's gut to break down seaweed, which I thought was extraordinary. So I was just joking to say Ozzy Osbourne might have the odd bat gene in there. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> How scary is that? But it's, it's quite amazing, isn't it? I mean, science is moving. It just moves on every second of our lives, doesn't it? We're, we're very lucky that there are scientists working about all kinds of things. Any other stories that have made, you know, rocked your boat in the world of science this, this year? Well, this, talking this week. about uh, genes and DNA and genetic codes and things, there is a very interesting paper which has been published in one of the big international journals, Science, this week, and it's by Paola Sebastini, who's at Boston University School of, of Public Health in Boston. And this team of researchers are interested in the genetic contributors to old age. In other words, what makes you into a centenarian? It seems that this is very, very heavily genetically determined because if you look at families where there are lots of people who are very old, they tend to all congregate in families. It's not just odd smatterings of people. You tend to get families where individuals all seem to live a very long time. And what the researchers have found is that if you study a cluster of people who live to be more than 100, in this case they recruited more than 1,000 people who were over 100 years old, and they compared their DNA with the DNA of about 1,200 or 1,300 people who were much younger when they died, average age 75, so normal lifespan, and they were able to find a number of genetic markers that singled people out to being of a very likely preponderance to live to a very old age. In other words, when they applied a genetic test, they could say with 77% accuracy whether or not 
a genetic sample from somebody chosen at random would live to be over 100 or not. So that's showing that 75% of your chances of living to a ripe old age is directly written into your DNA, at least, probably, when it comes to living to a very old age. And probably 30% is attributable then to the lifestyle you lead. But why this is really interesting is that by looking at which bits of the DNA uh, are contributing to this preponderance to living to be more than 100, it gives us clues as to which genes play major roles in the ageing process or protecting you from the ageing process. And that means if we then focus on what those genes do, it might be possible to get new clues as to ways to slow down the ageing process, reverse the ageing process, or identify people who are at risk of accelerated ageing, people who w will die prematurely, and there may be designed new therapies to help help those people so they have a better prospect of living to a ripe old age. Mm -hmm. Interesting stuff. Let's get to our questions. We'll start off with the first one, which comes from Jane in Whittam. How do red leaf trees photosynthesize if the leaves aren't green? Good question. Chris? Well, the reason that plants have green leaves is because they contain the pigment chlorophyll, and the pigment chlorophyll is the amazing chemical that enables a plant to, to capture energy, which is in sunlight, and use that energy to drive the chemical reaction that is photosynthesis. In other words, six molecules of carbon dioxide are taken from the air, and they're combined with six molecules of H2O, water, and out of that comes a molecule of glucose, C6H12O6, and six molecules of oxygen, 6O2. And that's why we thank the Amazon and also plants that live in the ocean for giving us oxygen into the air. And so everyone thinks, well, a plant needs to be green to photosynthesise. That doesn't mean, though, that plants can't have other colours in their leaves too. And if you look at some plants, for instance a beech tree, or some species of, say, lobelia, have beautiful dark almost almost blood red or even darker red pigments in their leaves. Mm. And this is because, like beetroot, they make chemicals called anthocyanins, which are a deep red colour. All they're doing is absorbing more of the blue light that hits the plant. So, relatively speaking, more red light is left to be reflected back to you. It doesn't mean that there's not chlorophyll in there soaking up light at the same time of both the blue and the red type. There's just additional pigments that can mask the green colour of the chlorophyll. And so leaves that are red are still nonetheless pretty good at photosynthesizing. They're just extracting a bit more light from the light that hits them, reflecting a bit less back to you, which contains a bit less blue. And if you subtract blue from uh, light that's already had um, a bit of red and blue removed from it, then you get a more red dominated color. And that's why these leaves look red, but they also look quite dark because they're actually net sending back to you a lot less light. Mm. Let's get to our uh, next question now. This comes from Antonio, um, who says, Why do moths fly towards light? Chris? Well, the answer is no one is really 100% sure about this, but one good theory is to look at how other insects respond to light, and most of them are really, really strongly controlled or driven or their behaviour is strongly influenced by light. If you look at bees, for example, these navigate using the sun. In their hives, they do a waggle dance to tell other bees which direction to fly in, and that waggle dance is is a way in which the bees communicate how far and in what direction to fly to other bees, and it's all done with respect to the position of the sun in the sky. That's one example. Other insects also navigates using the sun, and the monarch butterfly, for example, which flies in the northern uh, parts of North America, right down to Mexico to, to, spend the, the, to spend the winter. 
This navigates, again, using the sun. And researchers have done interesting experiments where they jet-lagged butterflies. And what you do is you put the butterfly into a position where it thinks that the sun is coming from a certain direction at a certain time of day, and it then sets its body clock by that particular uh, position of the sun because it knows that at 9 o'clock in the morning, let's say, the sun is always in the east and therefore it knows that if it flies in a certain direction as certain amounts of time go on, the sun will move across the sky so it has to adjust its attitude to the sun to stay on course and if you, if you jet lag the animal, it goes off course. So we know that insects, like moths, are really strongly affected by the effects of light. Moths probably navigate using light and because they may fly around at night when there's a moon, uh, they may use the moon as that source of light for navigation. If you turn a big bright light on, they can think that this is a light source by which they can navigate. And as they try and fly around to, to get around, of course, unlike the moon, which appears to them because it's so far away to stay in one point in the sky, the light source that you've put outside your house uh, keeps moving. And so they go off course and they fly in circles. Um, Dr Chris, we've had an email from uh, Ian in Wyndham and he asks, how come a hay fever sufferer's body doesn't build up in tolerance to pollen? Surely if someone is inflicted with the same harmless particles each year, it should eventually get to a point where it's no longer any effect. Mine seems to get worse each, uh, as each year goes by. That's from Ian in Wyndham. Chris? It's a really good question. And the reason we have allergy is that in some people, like me, we produce a class of antibody called IgE antibodies, which cross-react, in other words, they respond to or bind onto things which are in the environment, which most people would view as harmless, but which, when they lock onto these antibodies, lead to the production of large amounts of the chemical histamine in the body. Histamine is made by a type of cell called a mast cell, and these are present in all of our tissues. They're almost like policemen that are there to pick up foreign invaders trying to get into our tissue. And the body misinterprets pollen and other environmental things as dangerous. And so as a result, you get this response. And out comes the histamine. And the histamine opens up blood vessels. That is why the skin and the eyes get swollen. It also makes nerve cells that are responsible for signalling itch sensations become more active, which is why you get itchy. And because the blood vessels open up, and also become leakier, blood and proteins and water come from out, out of the blood vessels and build up in the tissue, which is why you also get the swelling. And that's why an allergic reaction looks the way it does. Now, it's a good question. Why should, when I'm encountering pollen on a regular basis, why should I continue to react to it like this? The immune system is baffling, and we really don't know precisely the answer to this question. Mm. Because it should be that the immune response should get better and better and better, to things that it should react to and just ignore things that it shouldn't. So clearly something has gone wrong in a person who has an allergy. But in recent years, scientists and doctors have been experimenting with people with fairly catastrophic forms of allergy called anaphylaxis. And if you look at people who have, say, peanut allergies, uh, in some instances, just a small amount of the protein from a peanut can cause this overwhelming release of histamine, especially around the mouth and face and throat, which is sufficient to close off the airway. And this can stop people from breathing, and they have so-called anaphylactic shock because the blood, the blood pressure can also be caused to plummet. You have to give them adrenaline to resuscitate them. And what scientists and doctors have found that is that in some of these people, if very tiny amounts of the allergen, the peanut protein, are given every day in increasing doses by mouth, 
eventually the person no longer responds anaphylactically to the allergen and can mm. tolerate it, mm. just as long as they keep being exposed to the thing they're allergic to. So there are some patients who were treated at Addenbrooke's Hospital by the team there, and these patients have gone from being not able to almost be in the same room as a peanut mm. to being able to eat and having to eat a handful of peanuts every day to make sure that they remain tolerant to them. Now, with hay fever, it could be that something sort of similar is happening because it could be that at the beginning of the pollen season, your body reacts to the pollen, but as the year goes on and the reaction continues, actually what you do is damp down your reaction a bit, which is why the symptoms go away. The thing is that this does also coincide with the end of the pollen season. The pollen isn't presented any longer, and so there could be two things going on. One is that you've become a little bit more tolerant to it. Two is that the pollen has just gone away. Problem is that then there isn't any pollen for the rest of the year. And so your body then forgets how to be tolerant to it, and the next year it starts to react to it again. And it could be that perhaps if we were being exposed to the pollen chronically in very low and perhaps escalating doses, we could drive this tolerant response. But researchers just don't really understand exactly what's going on with the immune system or what's going wrong with the immune system when we get an allergy in the first place. And there's a lot of work going on trying to understand the workings of the immune system. It's extremely complicated, and at the moment we're literally just groping in the dark. It's like putting your hand into a, a bag and not being able to see what's in there and just feeling around, and there are various balls and bits and pieces inside, and you, you pull some out and see what they are. But you're trying to work out what else is in the bag by studying the ones we, we do know about. It, it really is a black box. If you're enjoying Ask the Naked Scientist, then you might like to check out The Naked Scientist, our regular roundup of the world's best science. Each week we take a look at the latest science news, talk to top researchers working at the coalface of discovery, and also get our hands dirty with a science experiment that you can join in with too. So make it a date and prepare to strip down science on the web at nakedscientist.com slash podcast. All right, well, let's go to the phones this time. We do have Alan in Orpington on the line. Hello, Alan. Hi, oh, Sue. Um, the question is, does the sun have any gravity? And if it does, then why aren't the planets that we are all in, like the Earth, Saturn, etc., etc., why aren't we all attracted in towards the sun for, on a collision course? Hello, Alan. Hi. Uh, the reason for this is that the sun has an enormous amount of gravity. If it wasn't for the sun, we wouldn't actually have a year. We would be hurtling through intergalactic space probably by now, um, and we would have no light coming into the Earth at all. There would be no heat coming to us because we'd be out there in the middle of nowhere. The clutch of planets the material beyond our little clutch of planets, known as the Kuiper Belt, and then the clutch of material out in deep space beyond that, known as the Oort Cloud, is all locked gravitationally to our sun. It's exerting a pull on that material, and it's holding it in orbit. And you can think of this as a bit like if I had a ball on the end of a string, and I whirl my hand in a circular motion, the ball would go round in a circle, and it goes round in a circle because the string is pulling the ball towards my hand. Now my hand stays roughly in one position, it's just whirling the ball around. The ball goes around in a circle. The ball doesn't at any point suddenly fly in towards my fist. No. The ball is always trying to go in a straight line, but the string, gravity from the sun, is pulling the ball towards my hand. But every time it pulls it towards my hand a bit, the ball moves around a bit. And so the whole thing's in equilibrium with the ball going round in a nice circle. 
Now, you can simulate the effect of what would happen if there was no gravity from the sun by cutting that notional string, because the ball would fly off in a straight line and would carry on until something stopped it. And that's exactly what would happen to the planets and the objects in our solar system if the sun wasn't there. So, if that's the case, is there no movement of the um, planets, either towards the sun or away from it? We're absolutely in equilibrium throughout. We'll, ne we'll never change. Well, the solar system is now about four and a half billion years old, so it's pretty much settled down. But in the early days, it did move a bit. And scientists only really have begun to understand this more recently. There was quite a nice paper that was published in the journal Science last year by researchers in Arizona. A guy called David Minton and his colleague created a model of the early solar system. And in particular, they were interested in the asteroid belt that sits between Mars and Jupiter. Mm -hmm. Because in the 1950s, an American astronomer called Daniel Kirkwood noticed during his very primitive initial observations of this asteroid belt, that there were some holes in it. And he worked out that these holes were because of what are called gravitational resonances caused by various planets lining up with each other. And you can think about this in similar to bells chiming, and every so often, if you're chiming bells at different rates, they'll all ring together. And it's sort of similar with planets going round the sun. Occasionally, you'll get a gravitational resonance where they all end up in a certain position. And this can dislodge another object, and what this did was to pluck holes or make holes in the asteroid belt and send that material actually flying towards the centre of the solar system where it collided with Earth when the Earth was quite young. So in the early ages of the Earth, when it was less than a billion years old, it was being bombarded by all these asteroids. And the only way that their uh, simulation could recreate accurately the pattern of holes that people with telescopes can see in that asteroid belt is if they move the planets around a little bit. And what they worked out was that as the solar system grew and aged when it was in its infancy, Jupiter started off a bit further out and moved in a bit, mm. and some of the other deeper planets, Saturn, for example, That's Uranus, they moved to, really, out yeah. a little bit. And all of this got itself into balance and equilibrium about four billion years ago or so, and since then things have pretty much been stable, and we think everything pretty much is, is as it should be now. Mm. That's not to say there aren't other objects that could still be dislodged, because, as I mentioned, beyond the inner planets, the eight that we define, is the Kuiper belt, which is where Pluto is, and out beyond that is this Oort cloud. This is rocky debris and ice and other stuff that we don't really know much about. We've got probes going out there. New Horizons is a probe going out to Pluto and then into the Kuiper belt to, to go and have a look at that. It's due to arrive, I think, in 2015. That will tell us more about that area. But there's material out there which occasionally these gravitational resonances can dislodge and therefore can eject earthwards, and maybe even interactions with other stars. Gravitational resonances coming from outside our own solar system might be able to have an impact on some of this material and cause it to, to gently move about. And then you see these, these things occasionally come into the inner solar system. There are also comets which are on very long orbital paths that occasionally come in and cross the Earth and go back out again because of these initial movements. But pretty much the, the planets as we understand them are in stable positions now. Thank you. That was a fantastic answer. Thank you very much. Thank you for the question, Alan. It's Thank great you. to hear from you. Thank you. Now, Dave has sent an email in. Um, he was very impressed with the story about uh, genes being stored in the gut. And uh, it says you, by saying you are what you eat. But his question is, how does the brain store information, compartmentalise and access it? Chris. 
Well, the way in which the brain stores information, we believe, is through using connections between nerve cells. In other words, nerve cells have lots of little projections from their surface. These are called dendrites and axons. And where these meet another nerve cell, they can form a structure called a synapse. And at a synapse, the end of one nerve cell squirts out a chemical and that chemical moves across the tiny gap between the first nerve cell and the second nerve cell and it then locks onto a chemical docking station that's the right shape for that nerve transmitter chemical and the receptor, the docking station, is wired up via a series of chemicals to either a channel, a pore, on the surface of the cell or some other kind of mechanism which makes the cell change its activity and as a result by the chemical coming out of the first nerve cell and the second cell receiving that chemical, you can change the activity of the second cell based on what the first cell was doing. And by having lots of these connections that you can actually tune, so you can make some connections stronger and other connections weaker, then you can use this to build what are called neural networks. And when you put a piece of information in at one end, at the other end comes out some information changed in some subtle way or a bunch of nerve cells all change their activity in the right sort of way and we think that is effectively what memory is so memory gets written into groups of nerve cells as the strength of these connections between the nerve cells and in fact researchers in the last five years or so there's a guy called Todd Sachter who works in America have discovered that there's an enzyme um, which uh, is called um, phospholipase uh, C zeta which when you inhibit that enzyme, you can actually wipe out memories. And what this enzyme seems to do is keep those connections between nerve cells strong. In other words, it makes the receptors on the surface of the cells that see the nerve transmitter. And if you, if you inhibit that enzyme, then the receptors go away and the memory can be wiped away. And different parts of the brain are specialised to storing or forestoring different bits of information. So you have a part of the brain that seems to be involved in fear memories, that's called the amygdala. You have other bits of the brain which are involved in storing faces. This is the superior temporal gyrus. So you have different areas of the brain which store slightly different types of memory, but the general way in which they're doing it is by using networks of nerve cells that talk to each other, and you adjust the relative strengths of the communications between those nerve cells to write the information into those cells just in the same way really as a computer stores information. Wow, that's really quite something. We've got callers on the phone ready for you, Dr Chris. We've got Mark in Dunstable on the line. Hello, Mark. Hello, Sue. Hiya. Hello, Dr Chris. Um, it's about gorillas. You know, the species, we all break it. We're supposed to branch off and things and primates. But why have gorillas got such a gentle disposition? Yet gorillas will protect their, their young and their family and and they're quite adequate to do that and uh, yet they just live on vegetation yet they don't hunt or wouldn't hurt anything unless threatened what do you say chris i say evolution and yes gorillas are closely related to us i think we separated from them about nine million years ago so uh, we separated from chimpanzees they went or our ancestor with chimpanzees was about um six six million years ago so if you wind the um, genetic clock for humans and chimpanzees backwards you eventually get to a common ancestor that we both had about six million years ago gorillas slightly further but obviously although we all share a common ancestor gorillas chimps and humans about nine million years ago that's nine million years of evolution since then and 
what evolution does is to specialise organisms to take advantage of their particular niche, their part of the world. Chimpanzees have their niche, and their niche involves being quite aggressive in order to defend a territory, to defend their uh, mates and their offspring, and to fight rival groups who try to steal those things from them. Humans have actually become quite aggressive. We're pretty good at being territorial, but we're also very social. We do exist in very big groups, and we are intelligent enough to make laws to try and make interactions between us peaceful, but it hasn't stopped us having fights in the past. Gorillas, on the other hand, unless provoked, uh, are pretty gentle, but if they are provoked, they don't have to be. At the same time, they don't have to eat meat. They've evolved to eat vegetation, for example. So it's all about specialising for exploiting your niche most optimally and an animal will move into a niche that no one else is in it's finding space for itself in evolutionary terms and exploiting a resource which no one else is using and gorillas have, have learned to do that quite well at least until we came along okay mark thank you very much you're welcome Bye-bye, thank you bye now let's go to the phones again here's tony on the line hello tony hello sue and what's your question for dr chris my question is two part if i plant a redwood tree seed and that seed weighs nothing when it's fully grown, the tree probably weighs 50 tonnes. Has the planet just increased in 50 tonnes in weight, is my first part of the question. Then if I cut that tree down and burn it, and the ash weighs nothing at the end of it, where did that 50 tonnes go? Ooh. Hello, Tony. Uh, yes, very, very good questions, good insight. Um, I would like to give you a counterexample for you to think about, uh, which might make this clear. When you go to the petrol station and your car's tank is empty and you put the car on, let's say the car's on a pair of scales, and you put the filler spout in the petrol cap and you fill the car with fuel, does the car's weight increase? Yeah, it must do. Exactly, it does, because the fuel weighs quite a lot, doesn't it? In fact, when you've got a full yeah. tank in your car of 50 quids worth of fuel, well, actually, that's not much these days, is it? 100 yeah. quids worth of fuel, let's say. Um, then the car weighs as though it's got an extra person sitting in it. But when you go for a very long drive around the country and the tank is then empty, does the car weigh less? Yeah. It does. So what's happened to the fuel? It's gone out of the exhaust, I guess. Exactly. And, and in what form did it go out of the exhaust? In a gas. As the CO2 and water. That's right, and a bit of carbon monoxide. So the engine was just basically taking a fuel, which is lots of carbon atoms joined together uh, as chains of carbon atoms, not dissimilar to wood, really, which is chains of carbon atoms joined together to make polymers called cellulose. It's pretty similar. And the engine combined those with oxygen from the environment and made CO2 and released energy in the process that made you drive along, and the gas got dumped out the back. So in other words, the weight that you have put into your car of fuel that then the car lost in weight when it burned the fuel that weight hasn't disappeared. What it's done is to turn into gas molecules, which if you collected all of them and had them on a giant pair of scales, they would weigh more than the original tank of fuel did because you've added oxygen to the mixture. And therefore, you will therefore increase the weight of all the gases you produce because you've taken some oxygen from the atmosphere and added it to your fuel to produce CO2, which weighs more collectively than the original fuel did. Because just because it's a gas, it doesn't mean it doesn't weigh anything. In fact, if I got a plastic bag of air in the room, it would probably weigh, if I had a bin liner, for instance, I'd probably have about 100 grams of air if I could weigh it. But it's just because it's at the same pressure as the room that I can't weigh it. And so to answer your question, the tree gets CO2 out of the atmosphere, which weighs something, and it collects lots of CO2 molecules, and it does the reverse of what your car engine does. It turns the carbon dioxide molecules into wood, 
which is lots of carbon dioxide fixed into one place to make a big tree. When you burn the tree, you'd break up those carbon chains and turn it into CO2, which goes back into the atmosphere again, and therefore you haven't lost weight. You've merely spread out the weight so it's in the atmosphere instead of collected in one place. And the planet hasn't gained or lost weight, really, because the CO2 was in the air already, and therefore the planet as a system hasn't changed weight. That is a perfect answer. <laughs> He's great, isn't he? Dr Chris, thank you very much. And uh, Tony, thank you for your question as well. Right, uh, we've got time, I believe, for one more here. Now, let's have a look here. We've got one that came in from Andrew in Norwich from last week. who says, is there a way of controlling CSF fluid pressure with drugs? Like, can you control your blood pressure? Chris. The answer is yes. Um, what he's referring to is the cerebrospinal fluid, CSF, which is made in the core of the brain and then comes out from the ventricles, the fluid-filled chambers inside the brain, to surround the brain and spinal cord. And it's produced in something called the choroid plexus inside the brain. And you can control the rate at which it's produced to a limited extent by a drug. There is a drug called acetazolamide, which inhibits an enzyme called carbonic anhydrase. And in people who have altitude symptoms, it's also used, but it does reduce the rate at which CSF is made, at least acutely. It's, there's compensation after a short while, but it does work for a little while, and it can reduce the rate um, at which CSF is made. So you can control CSF pressure that way acutely. All right, one last, very last quick one here. Um, Neil has said, uh, do you think one day man will land on the planet Mars like they did the moon in 1969? I think it's inevitable. Even now, there are people in Russia who are in a warehouse simulating a, a long journey for two years, um, locked in a mock-up of a rocket, um, if you remember that story from a few weeks ago, to see how people cope with the claustrophobia and being locked up with each other for extended periods of time, which is what a Mars journey would take. But I think the answer is yes, because our thirst and our curiosity to discover and step into the unknown is insatiable, and I think that... It's too much of a sitting duck. We can't not go to Mars. Mm. I'll, I'll volunteer. I'd go. That's it for this week. Our doctors will be back with me next week for more Ask the Naked Scientist. But don't forget, you can also catch them on the Naked Scientist podcast, which you can find on the Naked Scientist website, www.nakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientists are sponsored by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com. 